0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Several decades ago, uh, when I first became a Christian, probably around 20 years old, uh, I remember I was visiting my sister in Texas with some extended family members and because I just became a Christian, I had this new affection for the church, a new priority to go to church. And we were, we were getting ready to fly home on a Sunday afternoon. And so I said to my family, can we find a church on the way to the airport to go to uh, before we go home? And they said, sure. And so we found this church and we get there. And it's a mega church. I mean, it was just massive, bigger than anything, Green Bay's ever seen. But we're there and everything's going well and it's great and fine and everything. And then we get to communion time. And the way that they did communion, this is where I was first introduced to these, I call them creamer communion cups, because they look like a creamer, just a little bit bigger with some juice and and the host in there as well. And so anyway, so I said, so they were, the way that they did it is they had these buckets full of these little creamer communion cups, okay? And the, because the church was so big, the ushers would just come and they would hand it to the last person in the row. And then you'd hand it down the row and everyone would take a cup who won the one. And then you give it to the usher on the other side. Well, they were handing this basket down of these communion cups. And one of my family members, who I will not mention um, their name, but one of my family members reached into the basket and grabbed like 10 cups and put them into her purse. And I was just like, what in the world is going on? I can't believe what I'm seeing. And so it went on and I turned to her and I go, what are you doing? Uh, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm like, I don't understand. And she said, well, you know, sometimes on the airplane I get hungry and I get thirsty. And I thought, these are such great little snacks that I can take with me on the airplane. And I just could not believe how the communion was so trivialized, how she was treating it so flippantly. You know, I've never taken a pocket full of communion home, uh, but I think all of us struggle with understanding and recognizing the weightiness and the beauty and the glory of communion when we come to it on a weekly basis. I know for me, sometimes I'm thinking about you know, what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. Or or sometimes I'm just really mad and vengeful towards God in my heart and unrepentant. Sometimes I'm just thinking nothing at all. And, And so this is one of the issues that's happening in the Corinthians church is the way that they're handling the Lord's Supper is completely irreverent. And so Paul, Paul writes to them to, to correct them. And I'm so thankful for the Corinthian church. I mean, of all the churches, the Corinthian church was the most messed up church. But I'm so thankful for them because if they weren't so messed up, we wouldn't get the instructions from First and Second Corinthians. But God has given this to us for our instruction and to teach us how are we to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so that's what this passage is about today. So if you would look at First Corinthians chapter 11, Uh, We'll be looking at verses 17 through 34, so it's a little bit of a longer passage this week. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 958. Page 958 in the Red Bible. And then if you would just keep your Bibles open, we'll be looking back at this passage throughout the sermon. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This is God's word for us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I love this. What? (laughs) What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that through your word this morning, you would grow our affection, not only for your supper, but for you. Help us to understand the beauty and the weightiness of this weekly supper that we partake in. And Lord, pray God that you would help us to examine our own souls as we consider it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. How should we participate in the Lord's Supper? That's the question. Paul gives us three directives on how we should participate in the Lord's Supper in a way that is both beneficial to us, but also honoring to God. Okay, The first is that we should participate in the Lord's Supper by honoring others. Look at verse 17 with me. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. Paul is saying what you are doing when you gather together for worship, when you gather together for communion, it is so bad that it is better if you didn't get together at all. That's how bad it is. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Division in the church is not a happy thing. It's not a good thing. It's not a wonderful thing. But Paul points out here that in some instances, division in the church is necessary. And Paul says it is necessary so that those who are genuine, those who are tested and approved, those who truly trust in Christ for their salvation, can be shown forth as being genuine to others. And so there is a time where division is necessary. And that time is not when we differ on our preferences in terms of what music we sing, or how loud it is, or things like that, or on peripheral issues that we come, that comes up in scripture. Division should happen within the church when it is around central things, when it is around the gospel of Jesus Christ. A great example of this historically is Martin Luther, who sought to challenge the church that salvation is not something that was to be sold by the church, that we cannot purchase our salvation, but that Christ purchased our salvation, and that we can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He was challenging the church, seeking to reform the church in this way. And because of it, it caused a great division in the church, but it's because it was around the foundation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at times it is necessary for there to be division in the church. Now, Paul does an about face and he talks about why division can be so bad in the church. Verse 20 says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. I've never seen how abrasive this statement is. Paul says you come together week after week after week and you think you're doing the Lord's Supper, but you're not. You haven't done the Lord's Supper in a really long time, even though you think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. And so why isn't it the Lord's Supper? Verse 21, he says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It, scholars believe that the that the communion meal in the early church was a part of a fellowship meal, much like that kind of original um, Passover meal in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It was this larger meal, the Passover meal. And within that meal, Jesus had certain moments within that meal in which he would uh, conduct the Lord's Supper or he transformed it into the Lord's Supper. And in the same way, they would have these gatherings with with a lot of eating and they'd be called love feasts and, and, and things like that. And during that, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But during this meal, what is evidently happening is that people are putting themselves before others. The rich were going first and they were taking all of the food and all of the drink and they were overfilling their bellies and they were getting drunk. Meanwhile, the poor who were going last had nothing left. And the worst part of it is it was humiliating their brothers or sisters in Christ. You see, it's so tempting to come to church as consumers, isn't it? Or as customers. A consumer is someone who has high expectations and low commitment, right? They expect a lot from the church, but they're not really willing to honor the church or to serve the church. I see this in my own heart. Uh, Yesterday, we had here, what's called presbytery, where our sister churches from around the state come together. And last week, I'm just thinking, oh man, this is so much work and I already have a busy week and I'm not sure I really want to do this, but it's here and we have to do the setup. We have to order food. We have to figure things out. Originally, we were going to have it outside, but because of the heat last Sunday, we said, let's move it inside. But there are several presbyters who, who wanted to love their neighbor and said, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So we had to move it back outside, set up a stage, a, a streaming, all this different stuff. It was just kind of crazy. And so I, I found my heart getting kind of bitter towards it. And as I was driving down Lineville Road, coming to the church, by God's grace, he reminded me, listen, you get to serve these brothers and sisters in Christ. It is an honor. It is a privilege to love them and to serve them. After all, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so how does this apply to us? I don't think any of you um, are getting drunk on grape juice or, or filled up on this little tiny wafer. So how does this apply to us? To come to the church, how do we come as consumers? Well, I mean, I think, to be honest with you, one way that we see that is even in our desperate need for more volunteers. Um, we only have like 10 spots to fill on a Sunday morning. And it's been a struggle to get people to step up and to volunteer for those things. And now, now I know if you're like me, maybe you just forgot to click on the link or whatever. So grace to you. But, but if you call Jacob's Jacobswell your church home, if you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. But if you call Jacobswell church your home, there should be a posture to serve. There are seasons for sure in life where you need to step away from serving. There, that's for sure. But when it's 80% of the church, I get a little bit skeptical, <laughs> And so one way that we come as consumers is we come and we say, I want to be served and not serve others. Verse 33, he he continues. He says, so then my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is how we serve one another at the communion table. We wait for one another. You know, if you've been here, we distribute the elements and we wait for one another and partake together. And then he says, verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. You see, here's the thing. Communion is not primarily about the elements. Those are important for sure. But communion is primarily about communing with God, but also communing with one another, communing with his church. In fact, in this passage on five different occasions in the Greek, it only shows up four times in the English, but on five different occasions, Paul uses a term that means to come together together. And so in talking about the Lord's Supper, he's saying, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, this is a supper that isn't supposed to be done in isolation on our own. But when we come together in worship of God, there are several points of application on this, and we've already made some. But just, you know, it is true that our faith with God should be personal, But in America, we have so individualized our Christianity that we have dismissed the necessity and the blessing of coming together on a weekly basis. I think even now, uh, there's some streaming, and, and they have medical reasons why they're doing that, and I honor that. But I think sometimes people are streaming just because they don't see the necessity and the blessing of coming together. I think there are Some who just feel like, you know, it's just so much easier to stay in the PJs and watch online, which it is easier. But God says it's so important for us to come together, to come together, to come together. Another quick point of application. You know, recently we've had people asking us, hey, can I take a couple extra communion cups home with me? And I love that you love communion. That's great that you love communion. That's wonderful. But here Paul says, no, when you come together, when you come together. And so we do it together in the midst of corporate worship. The final point of application is this. There are some people who are unable to come to church because they're homebound. They, they not for people who think church is inconvenient, but people who long to come to church, but they can't because they're elderly or they're bedridden. And it is in those moments that it is our privilege and honor to bring the church to them. And so Pastor Jonathan or myself will go with another elder, we'll go and visit those people and we will walk through the worship service with them, we'll talk about uh, the, the message, we'll pray with them and then we will commune with them. We'll do communion with them and we'll celebrate with them. And so here's the thing, if, if you're watching online and you're unable to come to church because you're homebound, let us know, we would love to bring the church to you. And you who are here today, obviously you're healthy, you made it, but if there comes a day, where you cannot come to church because you're homebound, please reach out. It would be our honor and privilege to bring the church to you and to commune with you. And so how do we participate in the Lord's Supper in a way that is honoring to God and beneficial to us? It's to honor one another. Secondly, we should participate in the Lord's Supper by remembering Jesus. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. This is what's often called the words of institution, also found uh, in the Gospels as well. It's when Jesus took the Passover supper and made it into the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, Paul says, "'For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, "'that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, "'took bread, and when he had given thanks, "'he broke it and said, "'This is my body.'" which is for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. I'm not sure why this stuck out to me this time studying through it, but I always kind of assumed that Jesus was just saying, remember the cross, remember my sacrifice, which we are certainly supposed to do in the body and the blood representation. But he says here, do this in remembrance of me. To remember his love for you, his compassion towards you, his grace towards you. To remember that he was incarnate, that he did miracles and wonders. That he loved people and cared for people and ministered to people. To remember that he is even present with you right now through the Holy Spirit. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he shows how extravagant his love is when he says, this is my body, which is for you. I mean, who else has said that to you in your life? Who says, I am going to give my life for you? And so we are to remember Jesus when we come to the table. Verse 25, he continues, and he says, In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. When he says this is a new covenant in my blood, it is hearkening us back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 was after God delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, promising to them, covenanting with them that he will be their God if they will be his people, or they will be his, yeah, he will be their God and they will be his people, that he will be faithful to them if they are faithful to him. And we read this in Exodus 24, seven. I think it's gonna be on the screen up here, maybe possibly. Says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Could you imagine how fantastic that would be at church if we butchered an animal and threw their blood on you? I mean, it'd be like an Ozzy Osbourne concert. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, listen closely, behold, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so basically God is saying, listen, I'm covenanting with you through shed blood that I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be faithful to you if you are faithful to me. Well, if you've read any of the Old Testament, you know how the story goes, that people are not faithful to God. They're not faithful to God at all. And so they break the covenant. But in the midst of them breaking this covenant, God, by his grace, promises them a new covenant, a more sure covenant, a more wonderful covenant, a more glorious covenant. We read about this covenant in Jeremiah 31. Again, I think it will be on the screen. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to their greatest, declare the Lord. And then he says this wonderful statement, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin No more. God promises. A new covenant, a better covenant, a more wonderful covenant. This covenant in the Old Testament is also called the covenant of peace, the everlasting covenant, the covenant of love. And so the people of God are waiting and waiting and waiting for this covenant to come, the covenant that we ratified in blood. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, the new covenant has come and it's not going to be ratified with the blood of animals. It's going to be ratified by my blood upon the cross, where I will pay for your sins, where I will bring you peace with God, where I will raise from the dead to give you everlasting life. And so when we come to the table, we celebrate that new covenant that the people of God long for, for generations and generations. The new covenant that has brought us peace with God. Back to 1 Corinthians verse 25, he says, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's that word again, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, there's a lot there. First off, notice that Jesus or Paul does not prescribe a frequency that the supper is taken. He says, as often as you drink of it. Okay, so whenever you do this, this is what you should do. All right. So we do it weekly. Other people do it quarterly. There's not a right or wrong answer. We think that we need as much of God's grace as we can get. And so we do it on a weekly basis, okay? So he doesn't prescribe a frequency, but he does prescribe a duration. He says, do this until I come again. See, when Christ comes again, our faith will become sight and our prayers will become praise. And the communion cup will be replaced with a greater cup at the wedding supper of the lamb. But until that time, we drink of this cup to remember Jesus. And one way we remember Jesus that Paul says here is that this supper actually proclaims the Lord's death. These elements our visible, touchable, consumable proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.C. Rao puts it this way. I love his language. He says, The Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon, appealing to believer's senses and teaching the old foundational truths of the gospel, that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where you're like, Oh, like maybe you're dating somebody like, baby, I love you so much. Words can't describe how much I love you, right? Or or maybe like even a, a parent, you say, I love you so much. I can't describe it with words. Or your kids, I love you so much. I can't describe it with words. Have you ever felt that? God has too. The words are important. He tells us in his word that he loves us and cares for us, but words are not enough. And so he has given us his supper to communicate it in a tangible, touchable, consumable way how much he loves you. Not a future version of you. He loves you today because words are important to tell you his love, but they are not enough. And so he has given us his table At the supper, we must remember Jesus, his works, his love, his presence, his sacrifice. We must remember because when we remember what he has done, it leads us to gratitude. And gratitude leads us to praise and praise leads us to enjoyment. Let me give you an illustration of this. There are times where I take my wife for granted times that I don't appreciate her as much as I should. And I know I'm probably the only husband here that does that, right? But then what happens is I start to remember. I remember that my wife left small, little Fall Creek, Wisconsin to come to hot, sweaty Missouri to be married to me. I remember that my wife followed me back up to Wisconsin where I had massive career failures and just was really struggling, and yet she was faithful to me. And then I remember that she followed me to seminary, that we went to seminary and she worked all through seminary to put me through seminary. And I remember that she took this great leap of faith to plant a church with me. And then I remember that she bore our four children and raises them and does an amazing job at it. I remember that she cooks me breakfast almost every morning and she shovels our driveway Almost all the time. I mean, I think she likes it. I'm not sure. Maybe she just gets early. But she is an amazing woman. I remember these things. And as I remember these things, my heart grows in gratitude. And as I grow in gratitude, I praise her. And as I praise her, I enjoy her. Does that make sense? And so we must remember Jesus. Yes, his death and resurrection. But all of Jesus. It's a boundless remembrance that we can have. Because when we remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it leads us to gratitude. And gratitude leads to praise. And praise leads to enjoyment of Christ at the table. Finally, how should we participate in the Lord's Supper? Honoring others, loving others, serving others, thinking of others, being reconciled with others. Remembering Jesus, who he is as the lover of your soul. But finally, by examining ourselves. Verse 27 says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. This certainly is a strong warning, isn't it? Not to come to this table casually or flippantly. Um, I, 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 I get concerned about churches that just kind of throw communion out to anyone, you know, like it's trick-or-treating or something like that. This is a serious matter that should be taken with reverence. Verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, what's interesting is he doesn't say blood, so he's most likely referring to the body of Christ, the church there at Corinth. If you're not discerning one another and being reconciled with one another, says eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that judgment look like? That is why, it doesn't say some, It's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. For the non-Christian, the judgment is a judgment of damnation. But for the Christian, the judgment is a judgment of God's loving fatherly discipline, as we see here. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Here's what he's saying. Our self-judgment avoids God's judgment. If we examine ourselves and judge our motivations, our repentance, our community around us, if we do that, it avoids God's judgment. So we must examine ourselves, repent of our sins, honor others in the church, and remember Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, asks the question, what is required to be the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is this, it is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him of their repentance, love, and I love this, and new obedience. I don't know about you, but I gotta pledge new obedience every Sunday because I struggle every week. It says, lest coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. The Lord's Supper is a serious thing. And so we must examine ourselves and judge, are we repentant when we come to the table? Have we repented to those in the congregation that we need to as we discern the body? And do we come by faith in Christ, even if it's weak faith, but we must discern and we must judge. Several years ago, there was a guy, we'll call him Joe. Honestly, I I forget his name. I didn't know Joe very well, but Joe was in his mid-50s and he, he suddenly died. And it was a very tragic thing. And while I didn't know Joe, I did know a lot of Joe's uh, acquaintances, and so I, I went to go and grieve with his acquaintances and check and see how they were doing, and it was interesting. I went to one guy, and he said, "You know, it's just so strange that Joe died, because on Friday Joe went to the doctor and Joe had a clean bill of health. The doctor said that he was that he was uh, I messed this up. Fit as a fiddle? Is that the right term? That he he was he was good, like his health was well. So he got a clean bill of health on Friday, and then on Monday he died suddenly." And then I talked to another acquaintance of his, and they said, you know, it's who was a Christian? He said, you know, it's interesting because Joe always was antagonistic towards the church and to Christ. He used to belittle Christians and Jesus all the time. And then I talked to another acquaintance, and they said, you know, it's really interesting because Joe never went to church. But the day before he died, he went to church and he took communion. And so I started to take this information and put the timeline today. Okay. Friday, he gets a clean bill of health. He, he's antagonistic towards Christ and to Christ's people. On Sunday, he takes communion. On Monday, he dies. Could it be that God is still holy? Could it be that God still fulfills 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Yes. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know Joe's heart. Maybe he repented and trusted in Jesus and God called him home. I hope that's the case. But this was a great reminder to me, the seriousness of the supper that we come and we partake of. That that we must examine ourselves and judge ourselves to avoid the judgment of God. Let me end with this. 25-year-old Jeremiah Washington was working at the DC Department of Employment. And on his lunch breaks, he met this woman, Michelle Stevens, and they had no romantic interest at all. And it never got romantic or anything like that. They just had lunch breaks together and they would talk. And so they were acquaintances, maybe friends, you could say. And as he was on these lunch breaks with Michelle, uh, she shared about how her kidneys were failing and how she was on dialysis machines and how she was Uh, Fatigued, Uh, she would black out, Uh, she was losing her balance and losing her sight. Jeremiah said, I saw my friend dying before my very eyes. Now, the good news was that Michelle had two brothers that were great candidates to be kidney donors. The bad news is, neither of the brothers wanted to give up a kidney because the surgery was painful. Because the sacrifice was great and it was even dangerous to their own life. And so Jeremiah decided that he would donate his kidney to this woman that really he barely knew. And it wasn't a simple procedure. They had to jab a, jab a rod up into his kidney and shoot, you know, uh, uh, die in there to test it and see if it was a good match. Uh, he was in surgery for several hours, ending with an a, a incision that was from his waist all the way up to his neck. After surgery, he remained in the hospital for five days and now he can't do certain sporting events because it would be too dangerous in case it affected his other kidney. The sacrifice was so great that the hospital said it was the first time ever in their history that a non-family member donated a kidney to somebody else. And when Jeremiah was asked why he donated his kidney, he simply said, "I prayed for it. I asked God for guidance, and that's why I that's that's what I got. God's guidance to donate his kidney." Now, here's the thing. Since the donation of that kidney, which was over a decade ago, Jeremiah and Michelle have gotten together twice a month for lunch. And what's so cool is they call that lunch a gratitude lunch. A gratitude lunch. Christian, what we celebrate here on a weekly basis is a gratitude supper in which we celebrate. Yes, it's serious, but we celebrate. We celebrate that God has not only donated his kidney, but he has donated his own son. As a sacrifice for our sins to win us to himself, to pour out his love and grace upon us forever and ever and ever. And so we come together in gratitude to give thanks to God. And so as we partake in the Lord's Supper, honor one another, consider one another, think of how you might need to repent to one another, remember Jesus and all that he has done for you. And then examine yourself. And come to the table with a repentant heart, pledging new obedience, rejoicing in the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, pray. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive this supper with new joy this morning. With new weightiness. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you that they would refrain and turn to trust in you for their salvation, Lord. Bless us through this meal. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.